Welcome to another episode of Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And in this episode, we talk about the first four episodes of the serial Marco Polo, which is also sometimes called A Journey to Cathay. So, Juliet, how have you been doing the past couple of weeks since we recorded? Not bad, not bad. No pet emergencies. Work is normal. Everything's kind of just normal lately. It's a little weird and I'm waiting for something to happen. All right. That's good. It's good. It's good that, yeah, you know, it's kind of low key, especially with the pets. You definitely don't want any emergencies there. Right. I have been plowing through some new books since the library reopened for curbside pickup mm. of holds. So I like read the new Picard book. I found another book in my house that I hadn't read yet. So. <laughs> Oh, that's 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 nice. I I I, I know where all my unread books are. <laughs> They're staring at me from bookshelves, saying, "Why haven't you read us yet?" Oh my gosh! The problem is always like I buy more books than I can ever possibly read because every time I see one, you know, when I'm out at a bookstore or whatever, I'm like, "Oh, I want to read this," and then it's like, "Yeah, well, you know, I'll get to it," you know, in a few years maybe. Uh, <laughs> like to my right is my shelf of Star Wars books, which. I have the entire, maybe not the entire, but I have the majority of the old EU sitting next to me. And I've read maybe about, you know, one sixth of it. Oh, oh, it hurts. Yeah, exactly. So I'm slowly but surely making my way through it now because I'm like, yeah, I know the movies and they got their whole new thing going on. But it's like, I, I want to I wanna read the story that I was already invested in and get through all of that stuff. Well, if you ever want a reading buddy, I've been wanting to reread through the entire EU from the beginning. So I will re read it along with you. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, we're going to have to... And then I'm going to introduce my third podcast <laughs> where we talk about Star Wars. Because, no, that's exactly what I'm doing. I, I went back to the very beginning, you know, like chronologically, mm -hmm. you know, with the Dawn of the Jedi stuff. And so yeah. I read that and then I'm going through chronologically. And so I'll reread the books I've already read once I get to them. Because that was all the Han, Luke, and Leia stuff. I haven't read any of the prequel books. I haven't read any of the pre... Before this, I hadn't read any of the pre-prequel books. And, you know, I, there's a whole lot... Like, once Lucasfilm started publishing the books themselves, I haven't read any of that. Oh, wow. I read all the Bantam stuff. Okay. But I didn't read any of the, the Lucasfilm, like, New Jedi Order and all that stuff. Man, I can't wait till you get to Republic Commando, because that's actually a really good little five, four or five book series. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, the prequels just killed my love of Star Wars for so long. I know, <laughs> I know. 
it was depressing. And so I was like, even though I enjoyed the books and I was like, well, I, I do like the books. It was just like, they really like sort of depressed me for a while. And by the time I sort of bounced back, it's like, oh my God, there's so much now. Cause like it just exploded with the books and everything, you know, like suddenly it was like they increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. There's one new Jedi Order book that I got to. It's like the first or second one. Uh-huh. And there was one event in it, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, that caused me to stop reading any of the newer books for like three years. Oh, man. It was intense. And as for the Republic Commando books or anything set during the prequels, I avoided those like the plague mm. until a friend for- basically forcibly pushed the uh, first Republic Commando book in my hand, and I read it reluctantly. I was like, oh, no, this is actually pretty good. Yeah. I get it. And so now it's kind of funny because it's, it's, it's when the sequels were announced is when I finally was like, you know what? Now that they're invalidating <laughs> all of it and I know it's not going to grow anymore. You, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like almost psychologically, because there was so much, it was almost like, I- I'm never going to be able to catch up. So why, you know, like, it's like, it just was so daunting a task to try to catch, you know, to read all this. But now I'm like, okay, even though there's a lot of books, it's just a certain number. Right. Now, I have friends that do that with shows like Game of Thrones. They were waiting for Game of Thrones to be done before they ever started watching. There's right. <laughs> just something psychologically about it now, knowing that, okay, there's just set number. I can do this. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, other than your Star Wars reading, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I, uh, you know, my cat, we had an emotionally draining experience with the cat. So you didn't have any pet drama. I had pet drama. I uh, took her to the vet, and other than when we first... No, no, I, you know, sh- her, I've never taken to the vet, now that I think about it. The dog, I've taken to the vet, because we had him first. But I've never taken the cat to the vet. I did not realize. When my wife told me, you need to take a towel, and I was like, oh, okay, so it's probably hard to get her in the carrier. <laughs> so I'll just, like, grab her with the towel and, and get her in the carrier. But no, it's like tooth and claw. She will fight the vet. Wow. And they got out leather gloves and everything to handle her. And so the thing was, she was there for her vaccinations and they weren't able to get her because she was moving so much and fighting so hard that they couldn't, she couldn't hold still for them to give her the needle. And so what they did is they sent me back. Oh, well, the other thing, the other problem, I think, is that my wife, when she does it, she schedules both pets at the same time. Mm-hmm. And she's not comfortable around the dog, even though they play and whatnot here in the house. But that's because she can always run away and go somewhere he can't go. We have the house sort of sectioned off. So they each have areas that they can go to that the other pet can't. Okay. Like he can go in the basement, but she can't. Because there's she can get into the ceiling in the basement and that's problematic. Uh-huh. And so we don't let her in the basement ever. And she can go upstairs, but we have a, a doggy gate that blocks him from going upstairs. Okay. So that way she has like a safe space she can retreat to when she's sick of him. So being in a small room, dog and cat together, I think that that set her even more on edge. It was certainly more stressful for me trying to keep two pets <laughs> yeah. calm at the same time. So that was also problematic. I'm like, if I'm ever doing this again, I want to do them one at a time. Mm-hmm. So, um... So they sent me back home and they gave me these pills and they were like, you know, get, you know, so we scheduled it for the following week and it was like, okay, two days before you give her, you know, pill morning and evening, then the day before we give her another you know, two morning and evening and then the morning before on the day of. So she had five pills and I could tell she was not okay. Like, I don't know why I had to give her five because after one, she was hardly moving. She wasn't eating. 
I'm like, she seems pretty, she seems like she was knocked out pretty well from that. But we gave her the five pills and I took her back and she still fought. I mean, she still tried, but because she was, I guess, weaker and slower, they were able to get her with her shots. Poor baby. Yeah, no, it's it's hard watching it. <laughs> it's hard watching it because you feel the anxiety of your pet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> In good news, though, I've been worried about my youngest daughter learning to ride a bike. Uh-huh. Because kind of, she's nine now, and she's big. So last year, I bought her the largest bike that you can with training wheels, 24 inch. Uh-huh. And she'd had bikes before and whatnot. It's just my time, especially when I go to work and how much I've had to work, it's hard for me to spend the time with her on the bike and help her learn how to ride it and everything. So this year I've been trying to get her to the point. And it was actually my oldest daughter who suggested getting her a scooter. Ah, uh-huh. And having her learn how to balance with that. Because it was the thing. It was like, she was too big for the bike. Even the 24-inch bike, she's too big for. But just slightly, just like a hair. Mm -hmm. Too big for a 24-inch bike. And so I think she had trouble balancing anyway because she was too large for it. Okay. So I got her a scooter. And she's been riding that around for like the last month or so. And so I got her to get back on the bike. And yesterday she's just riding out and I was watching her from behind. I'm like, you're not even using the training wheels on. So next time we go out, I'm going to take the training wheels off and I'm going to have her ride without. And then I'm like, we'll get you another bike. (laughs) I just want to make sure you learn balance first on this bike because I can put the training wheels on it. Mm -hmm. And then once you do that, I'll get you a, a bike that's more size suitable for you. I was afraid she was going to outgrow the bike by too much before she learned to balance and it's been kind of worrying me and bothering me just because it's like a bike is something to me i grew up in a place in florida where you just rode the bike everywhere Mm -hmm. like go to the video store ride the bike to the video store you need to pick up some milk just a couple groceries or whatever ride the bike bring back the grocery used to do that all the time and so to me it's like you just need to know how to ride a bike (laughs) you know it's just like this is part of life even though, uh, and here's also a pretty bike heavy area, even though I no longer have a bike of my own, just because I haven't had the time really to worry about it and why bother one if I'm not going to ride it, you know, kind of thing. But right. I didn't want to have her outgrow it before she could learn to balance. So to me, that's a big achievement. I'm very happy and, and it looks like things are going to be okay with that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's probably been the biggest thing in the last two weeks is watching her yesterday with the training wheels both up and being like, okay, we got this. Yay. Yeah. But we've probably been talking about us a bit too <laughs> much. So let's go on to the story. So uh, just out of curiosity, because the American school system sucks, and I'm pretty sure, because you know, I, I was familiar with this story from the time I was a kid, just because even though it didn't exist, there were novelizations for the different Doctor Who stories. And so I read this book probably when I was like seven about the story so were you familiar with marco polo as a person yes i actually do remember my history a little okay (laughs) yeah i I don't think marco polo was ever talked about in school like not before like and i I had a college history class where i know we talked about marco polo but i'm not sure in high school or middle school they ever even mentioned marco polo so that's good you didn't know know (laughs) it's not the water it's not the swimming game marco Polo. right So the writer on this one, uh, John Lucarotti, this is the first one he writes. He's going to write a few more stories. He came from radio. 
And I think that kind of shows mm-hmm. because I think the dialogue in his stories is always really good. And that's just one of the things that's nice about this being a missing story is that because he came from radio also, I think like he does a good job with the dialogue of also sort of like you don't need to see the visuals, even though it would be nice because a lot of the action and what's going on is sort of described as part of what they're saying. Yeah, I did notice that it was kind of interesting. Yeah, and the reason he chose Marco Polo when they asked him to write for Doctor Who is that he had already written, like, a radio drama about Marco Polo for Canadian radio, because he was Canadian. Okay. Yeah, and so it was like, oh, well, I already did, did the research on this guy, so this would be a really easy one to, uh, a really easy thing to do with Doctor Who. Okay. And yeah, so I already mentioned that the, they're missing episodes, so what happened is that the BBC, after a certain point, felt like, well, nobody wants black and white stuff anymore, and we can't sell these to other countries so we'll just junk these not realizing that a few years later fandoms would start growing up and home video would become a thing and everybody would want like oh i love that show when i was a kid i want to watch all the episodes right so thankfully certain episodes were never junked and other ones were found because the countries they were sent to never junked them or some were misfiled or whatever and then were found later or in a few cases even bbc employees took them home with them because <laughs> they were like, hey, if you're going to junk them anyway, right? you know, why don't I just take it home? And then they returned them, obviously, when the BBC was looking for them again. But sadly, this one is completely gone. All seven episodes are missing. With other ones, it'll be like, yeah, we might have a few episodes missing and a few episodes still exist. So you can at okay. least get some feel for it. But yeah, this one's completely missing. So how did you feel watching a recon, you know, reconstruction, like, Did you find it hard going? Not really. I mean, I listen to a lot of radio comedies and Mm. shows and stuff. So that's not that weird. And honestly, having the images, the stills, I'm assuming from magazines or wherever they pulled them from, was very helpful. Mm Mm-hmm. So this one, actually, it's a few different places. This was the first Doctor Who story to ever be featured in uh, what's called the Radio Times which is like the British TV guide. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of pictures in that because they did like a full spread on Doctor Who and lots of pictures and articles and stuff. But also the director had what's called telesnaps taken of the episodes. There was a special rig that would take pictures of the video coming from the cameras. And so that's why there seems to be so many pictures for this is because he's got like, I don't know how many per episode, but you know, like 20, 30 20, 30 pictures per episode. So that's pretty good. And the other thing is the designer, because he was so happy with this one, mm-hmm. he took a lot of pictures of just like the sets and things. So in a few cases, they actually Photoshop. And I don't know if you caught any of that, but there's few cases where they, they didn't have a picture to show something. They mm-hmm. would take this, the background picture and then they would cut out the characters from other <laughs> pictures and paste them in in a way where it's like, oh, we can show them in this room together. <laughs> I mean, it works. Yeah, no, it works. It works. So yeah, there, there's a lot of pictures for this one. And supposedly everyone involved in it absolutely loved it. Like I say, from the designer to everybody else, everyone thought this one is something special, which actually sucks because then it's like, okay, we can only see it from the still picture. Right. And yeah, and so this is... I mean, even though somewhat an unearthly child sort of counts, this is the first real historical story where there's actual people that are known from history. And so this was the other side of Doctor Who because they wanted it to be educational. And I know it's kind of unusual now looking back on it because even though Doctor Who now goes into the past, 
it's like they go into the past and then there's some alien creature or something there. Mm-hmm. But their thinking in this time period was they didn't want to do something like that because they wanted it to all be stuff that was like, you know, this is this really happened. You know, I mean, not everything in the story really happened, but the main stuff is mm-hmm. all real. Like the characters they reference and all that, these are real people from history. And so they didn't want the idea of aliens invading Earth in the 13th century because then like kids went to school and were like on their <laughs> test. Yeah, and then Marco Polo fought off the aliens and, you know. <laughs> that would have been so much cooler. No, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a little bit of a difference. And the other thing I wanted to talk about before we got into the actual story is And this is something that's going to crop up from time to time when we go to non-European locations, especially in the 60s. Most of the actors are British, and they are in Yellowface. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, I I took it in context of when it was made. I know, I just feel like it's something that should be just noted. Because, yeah, I mean, they say that at the time there weren't a lot of East Asian actors in England and whatnot. So, I mean, I kind of get what's going on there. The actress who played Ping Cho was actually Asian. She wasn't Chinese. She was Burmese from the country that's now called Myanmar. Mm-hmm. So she was ethnic and Asian. And some of the background characters that they, you know, they got some people to just stand in and whatnot who were Asians. And you can see that in some of the pictures. But our main speaking roles. Right. All the main speaking roles other than Ping Cho are all white guys. Now, now here's the thing, though. And this is the one thing I will give them credit for. A lot of things at the time when they did this, they would all be talking like, Miso veli sali kind of stuff. They don't do any of that. They don't try to do like fake accents and try to sound silly or anything like that. No. They're just speaking normally. I think that they're trying to make it as authentic and real as possible and just trying to convey that we're in this other place in time. But it is a little, when you see the pictures, <laughs> this is obviously like a pasted on mustache and beard, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah so anyway it's uncomfortable but it's one of those things and i'm glad yeah i mean like that's the way i always take it too it's it's of the time but yeah anyway so we start off it's episode one is called the roof of the world and we're back at barbara and susan staring at the giant footprints and you're thinking okay maybe it's a yeti or something like that and then ian has to come out and ruin it and be like it's just a regular footprint that was melted by the sun to make it look bigger i know and i just really wanted it to be a yeti Uh, they'll come they'll come (laughs) so yeah i mean the doctor thinks he's gotten them back to earth but they're not sure they know they're really high above sea level wherever they are and so they're starting to wonder like where could we be is it the alps the andes susan suggests the himalayas she'll turn out to be right But then the doctor goes back into the TARDIS and he comes out and guess what? It's broken again. (laughs) I mean, come on. Are we really that surprised? And not only is it broken, but it's out of water and there's no heat. Right. Which I have issues with this. I get that they hadn't really like, there's no actual physics for the TARDIS. But when you have to consider the fact that it's in another dimension on the inside than it is on the outside, should the temperature on the outside really affect the inside? Apparently in this case. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Just seems weird. But yeah, so Ian's like, well, we're going to have to find some firewood. And so he and Barbara go off to try and find something. But of course, they're on the top of the mountain and it's snow everywhere. So they're, they're not able to find something. But while they're out, Barbara thinks she sees something moving. And at first, Ian doesn't believe her. And I'm like, really? <laughs> After everything that's happened? 
you don't believe that she's seen someone like after you guys didn't believe Susan and she had actually seen someone back in Daleks. It's like, all right, come on. Right. And like the doctor gets all snippy with Barbara and I'm like, didn't you guys just share a moment like five minutes ago <laughs> and you're going to yeah. start acting like this again. Yeah. But she shows Ian the footprint. And so then he realizes somebody was there, but he, she thinks it's like some kind of creature or something, but Ian's like, I think it's just a fur boot. And when Susan sees somebody else when they're talking to the TARDIS, they run off and then they're surrounded by a bunch of Mongol warriors. And one guy steps up and is basically like, hey, these are evil spirits. We got to kill them. Yeah. Also, I just got to point out real quick. Everybody speaks and understands English. Not a single problem here. And that's never addressed so far with the TARDIS. Like, I get that the TARDIS in the new series apparently has like this translating circuit and stuff. Mm -hmm. But... We don't know about that yet in this classic Who. So my first thought was, wow, that's just convenient. Right. Yeah, you know, it actually isn't until the 70s that they even try to give an explanation for that. We go 14 or 15 seasons of the show and they never explain it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, although I'm glad because there actually was a story that never got made where they were going to show there was a room in the TARDIS they had to go to to hypno-learn the language from whatever place they were going to be in. And I'm like, oh, that would have been tedious if they had to do that every episode. Just a so bit. Kind of glad they didn't do that. But yeah, just as they're about to be stabbed, a European guy shows up and tells the people to put their swords away, and he commands them in the name of Kublai Khan. Now, I know you knew about Marco Polo. Do you know about Kublai Khan? Yeah, sorry. I had to mute. My neighbor's car was very loud tearing oh, down okay, the street. okay, sure. <laughs> I am familiar, but my history knowledge there fails me. Okay. So actually, Doctor Who did what it was supposed to do with me when I was a kid, because I would go look up the characters from the story. So any time period the Doctor is visited, I know a lot about. So he is the, uh, was the grandson of Genghis Khan. There were some accounts that said that he is the nephew. He could have possibly been both or the great nephew, because, you know, incest was a thing back then. But, <laughs> but yeah, so like Genghis Khan, he conquered most of Asia. Right, you know, like Mongols, they were everywhere, they conquered most of Asia. Right. But what Kublai Khan was like, he was the one that tried to maintain it, even though, I mean, he also did some conquering. But he was more, it was more of like how the Macedonians conquered Greece, and then they sort of integrated the culture together mm -hmm. with Alexander the Great. It's the same way with Kublai Khan. Like, Genghis Khan conquered all this stuff, but Kublai Khan was the one that sort of turned it into an actual empire. Okay. And... So uh, it's like how the Greeks influenced the Macedonians really heavily. It's the same thing. Like the Chinese influenced the Mongols heavily because the Mongols were a superior military force, but the Chinese were more developed in most other areas. And so they sort of became a fused culture, cool. uh, which is why so much of this happens in China or what was called Cathay back then. And they even like adopted a lot of the Chinese practices and things like that just because the Chinese were more advanced in a lot of ways. So that's the short version history lesson <laughs> for today. But yeah, I mean, it, this is before China adopted its isolation policy. Kublai Khan was very interested in learning anything he could from foreigners, which is why Marco Polo was like, okay, yeah, you know, teach me about Europe and, you know, all your stuff too. Whether that actually happened or not is the thing, because now a lot of historians are saying that Marco Polo made it all up. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah. So it's unclear whether it really happened or not, because he knew a lot of stuff. He could have learned from other people, but at the same time, there are no records, even though the Chinese were meticulous at keeping records, about a European named Marco Polo who came to Kublai Khan's court. Mm -hmm. But he did write a book, or a scribe wrote the book. 
And that's why so many people know about his name when he came back to Europe. This book was published and about his travels. And so in the story on Doctor Who, they have him keeping a journal as sort of like, oh, this is what he then, the accounts from his book would come from. Mm -hmm. So with all of this, though, I just want to point out that at least the doctor is the only one feeling any altitude sickness. I don't know why Ian, Barbara, and Susan (laughs) seem to be completely immune to being what I'm guessing is somewhere near the death zone, possibly. Who knows? Yeah, they're in the Himalayas. We we, we know that much. But yeah, exactly how high they are. I think the doctor says they're several thousand feet above sea level, but I don't think we really get a a good feel for that. But he's at least showing some signs of Mm. it. He's just like weak and everything else. The others are totally cool with just prancing around in the snow and thin air. Well, I think it has to do with, again, because they hadn't really thought through like the doctor is an alien and all that. And so I think it's just the fact that he's older. Of course, he would be more susceptible to the altitude sickness than all these younger people. It does make me think about all the places that the TARDIS goes, though, because after Mm -hmm. I thought about that, I was like, how many times have they just been somewhere that would be crazy different pressure for a human, for a regular person? And we see none of those effects whatsoever. Well, at least at this point, like they're checking readings in the TARDIS before they go out to make sure that the pressure and the gravity and everything are Earth normal or close to it before they go out. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out in the one with the cavemen, it's like the air would be so different back then because of the lack of pollution that it would still be really bad for them. Right? Yeah. I'm the weird person thinking about the science behind it. Right. <laughs> So one thing I will point out is that the costumes in this one are great. Oh yeah, totally knew those were Mongols right off the bat. Right. The great thing about the BBC is they do so much period drama that it's like Doctor Who, they didn't have to make all their own costumes, right? Because they could just pull like from the costume library at the BBC and have all sorts of stuff readily made. And in fact, I think I read that some of the costumes and props were actually used in movies as well. So it was like they even got the benefit of movie budgets in this one being able to pull from stuff that had already been made and it shows in the pictures like the costumes are good the sets look really good it definitely looks like an expensive production oh yeah and they go back to marco polo or well we'll find out he's marco polo they don't know yet although barbara is suspecting and they come back to the tent that's where we meet ping cho we eventually find out that ping cho is the daughter of some high official in samarkand which is, uh, I looked this up. This I didn't know. Samarkand is modern day in a modern day Uzbekistan. Okay. So she's there because Marco's taking her to the Khan's court and because there she's betrothed to someone there. And Barbara explains to Susan who Kublai Khan is. And then Ian gives his science lesson about water boiling at a lower temperature oh my gosh. when you're up high, which <laughs> it's the sad thing. Like the historicals are great because they can teach history without being like, okay, kids, here's your history lesson for today. (laughs) But whenever Ian has to do like, uh, here, I'm going to take this opportunity to give a science lesson, it always feels kind of awkward because it's like, (laughs) it just seems kind of forced. Well, it it was less awkward than learn, you know, for kids at that time who may not have known about arranged marriages or paid attention to them. You know, poor mm. Ping Chow. She's like, yeah, no, my my betrothed is seventy five years old, <laughs> and that's just normal, uh, right? Well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, it's the thing that's done. So you know, in her in her culture, so not good when you're like a late teen girl, right? Yeah, but this is when we learn that uh, he's Marco Polo. 
They're traveling to China, which is called Cathay back then, and Polo offers to let them stay with them. And the doctor asks the year, and Polo says it's 1289. So then later, though, because Ping Cho and Susan share uh, a tent together, mm-hmm. Ping Cho tells Susan about the fact that she's betrothed. Susan's, I, I find it weird that Susan seems to be surprised at the whole concept of an arranged marriage. Because it's like, how, how long have you been traveling and you've never seen this on any of your travels or heard about this? But okay. But yeah, she's kind of weirded out by the whole thing. Right. But yeah, Ping Cho is like, oh, like that doesn't happen where you come from. (laughs) I I think this one is nice because it gives Susan more to do by giving her someone to talk to. Like closer to her own age-ish. Yeah, exactly. And I I really like the friendship that goes between them. That part was good. I did enjoy that. Then Tagana tells Polo that he should have killed the travelers. Because they're evil spirits. Because they're evil spirits. That's right. (laughs) But Polo says that they just look and sound strange. It's no reason to kill them. And then Tagana's like, no, seriously. First of all, their carriage has no wheels. And it's too small to hold four people, but I've seen four people come out of it. I mean, four people could fit in there. Just be a bit of a squeeze. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sure probably four people could. But yeah, it's not going to be comfortable. But yeah, I like this is this is where like the dialogue gets good is like Tagana always has great things to say. Like it stands like a warlord's tomb on one end. It's a great description. It is. It's a great line right there. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, then we go to the next day, and Polo goes out to look at the TARDIS, and basically he is like, how does it move? It doesn't have wheels. And then Ian tells him that it flies. Yeah. Which I guess I see that Ian didn't really have any way to come up with a story that didn't sound like complete garbage, but... At the same time, it's like, I don't know if I'd go with flying, though. That's a little not great. (laughs) But Polo actually believes this because he says that he's seen Buddhist monks levitate cups. So why not something larger? Yeah, they just got a bunch of Buddhist monks hiding out behind one of the rocks. (laughs) Waiting to levitate this TARDIS. But yeah, he starts getting really interested in it and is asking, like, hey, can you make it fly? And Ian's like, no, only the doctor can do that. He's dealing with the key. But it's broken, so it's not going to do anything. And so Polo is like, okay, well, we'll just take it with us. Because you can't really stay, you know. I mean, you don't want to stay really high up in the Himalayas any longer than you have to because it's cold and the lack of air and everything. So they're going to keep moving, but they'll just take it. It's true. And I'm pretty sure that at this point, at some point in here or in a few minutes, is when Marco gives one of the worst pickup lines ever. My caravan is large. (laughs) He said that, I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I did not think of that line that way. He even says it though, like, my caravan is large. <laughs> oh, it was awful. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Trying to impress the Europeans, I guess. Um, apparently. Right. <laughs> even though he's just going to take everything from them. Right. <laughs> but yeah, while this is all going on, the doctor's talking with Ping Cho back at the tent because they didn't want him to leave because he has altitude sickness. And that's where he learns that Tagana is a warlord working for Nogai Khan, who had been fighting Kubakan, but that now they're going to have peace. And so Tagana's going to the palace to, you know, basically be the person who negotiates for peace. 
I think during this conversation, the doctor's actually pretty nice to her and even compliments her at one point. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's pretty sweet. Yes. For once. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's always nice when people are friendly to him. It's only when stuff happens that he doesn't like that he gets into full, like, arrogant mode. Yeah, let me voice an opinion different from yours. So, yeah, Marco arrives, tells the doctor his plan that they got to move the TARDIS. And so the doctor seems okay with that. But then he's like, okay, I'll I'll work on it as we go. And Polo says, no, because the, you know, the bears are superstitious. And they think if you go in there that you'll have all your magic powers. And so let's wait until we get to this way station at the city that we're going to. And you can work on it there. Uh And so the doctor's like, okay, that's fine. And then we cut to, this is the only time this ever happens in Doctor Who, we cut to a map with, like, the lines drawn on it, like an Indiana Jones movie. I saw that, I was like, wow. That shows their progress. (laughs) It was great. Yes. And then we get narration also, which is very unusual for the show, because it's like Polo is writing in his journal, we hear what he's writing in there, and so Mm -hmm. he basically narrates the journey. So I think that's a nice convention for this one. Especially because they go to so many places. Right. So it gives a lot of like, you know, well, this is what happened on the way kind of stuff. So we skip to the actual drama. Oh, and then like the first picture they show of Barbara and Ian at the way station, they're wearing the Chinese hats that my wife calls thinking hats. (laughs) I love it. You know, those little cone hats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And Susan says something is fab and suddenly Susan becomes the beatnik girl for like this whole story where she's talking about things being with it and (laughs) crazy, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm like, Susan, you've never talked this way before. (laughs) You bust out that lingo, Susan. You introduce it to them early. I am so ahead of my, I'm 600 years ahead of my time. (laughs) 900, no, 700, but my math sucks. 700 years ahead of my time. So once they're there, the doctor tries to get into the TARDIS, but then some of the Mongols block his way. And then Polo tells him his story and is basically like, look, I've been here since 1275. It's 1289. I want to go home, but the Khan won't let me leave. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that if he can offer him something so spectacular as a gift, that he'll finally let him go. And so that's his thing. He's like, you have this flying caravan. I'm going to offer him that as a gift. And then there's no way that he'll deny me. So there's so much wrong with that, including, first of all, didn't they just go back with this in the cave of skulls and such? You know, fire. Okay, we've, we've given you fire. Can we go now? No, you're going to stay right here. Right. Said, too bad Marco wasn't a part of that adventure because he would realize that that's not going to happen. Mm. Also, don't I recall them saying that if you tried to get into the TARDIS without knowing the right combination of how to unlock it, that basically it, you'd be trapped forever outside it? Yeah, that'll actually be alluded to later, where the doctor says you need knowledge to enter my ship and knowledge that you don't have. That's like, I think it's in the fourth episode mm-hmm. um, he says that. So I think, I think that's what he's referring to there. But at this point, he doesn't mention that. They just say, you'll have no clue how to work this thing. And he's like, Oh, but the Buddhist monks will figure it out because <laughs> they can make cups levitate. So, you know. Hey, that's his fallback. But I love it. So the doctor starts having a laughing fit at just the absurdity of this whole thing. I thought, is he crying? Is he, <laughs> it took me a full like 10 seconds to be like, nope, nope. He's hysterically laughing. Because they're like, oh, we're never going to be able to, to get another one. And this is important. And he's like, 
oh, but I'll take you back with me to Venice and Venice trades with everywhere. So you'll be able to make it another one. And like the doctor's just like, oh, make another one in Venice. <laughs> you know, and he's just, it's so absurd that he just can't contain himself and just, uh, just laughing at it. <laughs> So. It's just too much at that point. You know, that absurdity is just beyond all the rest. <laughs> yes. So I like that. I, I've had people be like, or I've seen people say things like, oh, the doctor laughing like Hartnell's forgotten his lines or something. I don't think that's it at all. I think that the laughing is supposed to be there because of just the doctors basically just thinks this whole thing is absurd. I totally get it. It made sense to me. Yeah. So then we cut to Tagana. And this guy is giving him poison and he's like, I will use it on all but the first of Marco Polo's water gourds. <laughs> okay, he doesn't. That's our, <laughs> that's our cliffhanger. <laughs> I don't know why. I think Tagana is great. I would have loved to have seen this just for his performance because that actor just has this vocal quality where it's just like, I don't know. He, he, he just, this delivery on everything, just, it sounds so sinister and everything. It's just like, he's a great villain. Do you know who his voice reminded me of? Who? Tony J. He was a voice actor that, uh, he did the voice of Frollo from the Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, he was the okay. voice of the Elder God in the Legacy of Kane and Soul Reaver video games. Okay. And he was also the voice of Anubis in the Gargoyles cartoon. Oh, that guy. Okay, now I know who you're talking about. <laughs> he has this fantastic British deep, it, it, it's, it's a mm-hmm. villain voice. It's like on par with Jeremy Irons. Mm-hmm. That's who he reminded me of. Yeah, no, that's not a bad comparison. Yeah, he did a lot of other stuff, too. I heard his voice popping up on shows all when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. But I've seen Gargoyle so many times, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I just, like, rewatched that episode yesterday. I was like, that's Tony oh. J. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that one also has Matt Frewer as Jackal, and he was always mm-hmm. great in that show. So then we go to episode two, which is The Singing Sands. <laughs> and this one, just for a little background... Hartnell was sick during the rehearsals, so he didn't come to the rehearsals, which is why the doctor isn't in this one for most of it. Okay. So, like, that's why we have all these scenes of them going like, oh, it's a shame that the doctor's off in a huff and won't talk to the rest of us. Or, man, he's sleeping through this? How can he do that? And then he just has a couple lines towards the end is because he wasn't able to get to the rehearsals. But, yeah, so then we come back to the scene with Tagana. And he's basically telling the guy that after three days in the desert, because they're about to cross the Gobi Desert. Mm -hmm. And he says after three days, he's going to come out of the camp and cross back to these guys. And that then they should wait another couple of days and then attack Polo and his his caravan. And he talks about that they should take the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. So I've had people talk about this as a plot hole before, that if Tagana was going to go see the Khan and had this whole plan with that, that it didn't make sense with him killing Polo. But I think people are missing the fact that I don't think originally Tagana was going to do this. This is all about once he finds out about the TARDIS, he's like, we need to capture this thing. Oh, this is totally an attack of opportunity right here. Right, exactly. I don't think this was always his plan. So, yeah, then they have, like, a scene where Marco is talking about how important the water is in the desert and how he goes a bit on the conservative side with it because a lot of people have died because they didn't bring enough water with them. And then he challenges Ian to a game of chess. Yeah. And they have this really awesome, elaborate, carved chess set that they use that I wish I had, but, you know. 
Also, Susan and Barbara have a very sweet exchange, and Barbara's talking about how when all this is over and she and Ian go back home, and Susan's like, oh, that's not going to happen for a long time. Right. I'm like, oh, Susan doesn't want them to go. Mm-hmm. It's sweet. Yeah, that's also when she says something like, once we know all the mysteries of the skies, we'll stop our wandering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting line. Yeah, I like that. I think there's a difference here with... They're kind of laying some seeds with the Doctor and Susan because... I think with this story, they're kind of hinting that Susan actually wants to kind of find an end to it all. Mm -hmm. Whereas the doctor is very much about just the eternal travel and exploration. Like Susan kind of wants them to someday stop. Yeah. So I think that that's, they're setting up some things with Susan with this. I'll be curious to see where that goes. Oh yeah. So then (laughs) Susan and Ping Cho are talking. And Ping Cho's talking about, like, how beautiful it is on a moonlit night. And Susan's like, I've never seen a moonlit night. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, I get there's a lot of fog and clouds in England, but but never? I'm fairly certain she even mentioned walking in the fog and clouds at night Yeah, in England. Well, I mean, it's different when it's a cloudy night. There must have been a clear night at some point when she, I mean, she was in England for, like, months. She has to have seen a moon somewhere. I know, exactly. So I found that a little weird. And then there's a nice little bit where Marco and Ian are playing chess and Tagana, Tagana says, Marco, can you save your king? Which is a nice little nudge-nudge kind of thing of, oh, I'm planning this thing to double-cross you. Oh, and Ian has another really bad line too, right there. Playing the chess game, and Ian says something, and, Ian, and then he's like, "Like my queen." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like uh, something's dangerous, and he yes. says, "Like yeah, like like my queen." Oh, <laughs> I was like, okay, at least this one went to Ian and not right. Marco. Oh no, Ian is the dad of the group, so I mean, he's <laughs> not really a dad, but he's got the dad jokes and the dad lines, so you know, definitely. <laughs> and yeah, Susan's still doing her beatnik stuff, crazy, dig it, and with it. I'll get said in like a few sentences. But yeah, they go out for their little moonlit stroll, but then they see Tagana leave. And so they're like, hey, that's weird. And so they go follow him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Marco hears the horses whinnying and he realizes that a sandstorm is coming. But nobody knows that Susan and Ping Cho and Tagana have left the camp. And so apparently what they did for the effect was that they just put a bunch of sawdust in the studio and turned on a, you know, a big fan. Okay. To, like, blow it. But then they put, like, this really creepy like, sound effect over it. Oh, yeah. My note on that is in all caps, and it's like, what is that cackling? Are there sandwiches? And I was halfway through writing that last sentence, and I was like, pun intended, though I didn't mean it when I was writing it. <laughs> Sounded like jackals. This is actually from Marco Polo's journal where he talks about like sandstorms and they sound different all the time. And sometimes it sounds like voices calling you, which comes up in this where she thinks she hears Ian's voice. And sometimes it sounds like just cackling and, you know, other different things. So all of that's from the journal. And so that's why they had that really creepy cackling effect in there. And I think it works pretty well. Definitely. It was, it was very, it creeped me out. And then I kept hearing somebody yell for Susan constantly. Mm-hmm. and it was it was very unnerving right and susan's even think because susan was worried from the moment they saw the sandstorm coming that she was like let's run back for the caravan and ping chose like no just stay here and cower behind the sand dune mm-hmm. and so susan wants to bolt as soon as she hears somebody calling because she thinks that ian's out there looking for her but ting cho keeps her down and then tagana stumbles on them 
Yeah, in a terrifying way, because at first I didn't realize it was him. I just saw this shape that looked freaky. Yeah. Also, that sandstorm was really loud. Like, you could barely yeah. hear the dialogue in some places. Mm-hmm. So once it's all over, because in the meantime, everyone's realized that Ping Cho and Susan are gone, and Tagana is gone, and they're like, oh no, there's nothing we can do because we can't go out there in this, because then we'll just be lost. Mm-hmm. So once it all ends, they're ready to go out, but then Ping Cho and Susan and Tagana come back to the caravan, and Marco's livid about the whole thing, because, you know, he almost lost the two people he was supposed to be protecting with all of this. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, Tagana, I can't believe that you let these kids leave, and Tagana's like, oh, they weren't with me. I just wanted to go out for a stroll, because it was such a nice night. <laughs> Right, because we all believe that. Right, exactly. And then he takes a fruit from a bowl. Right, and then he crushes it in his hand once he leaves, and I'm like, what was that for? I don't know, but I had two notes. I was like, you take that fruit, dude, followed immediately by, oh well, poor fruit. Yeah. <laughs> so then Marco changes the rules, though, where like if anyone leaves, like, the guards are supposed to keep anyone from leaving and let him know that somebody tried to go. And Susan doesn't believe Tagana at all, and she talks to Ping Cho about it. But Ping Cho's like, well, what reason would he have to lie? And she's like, I don't know, but he was. Mm-hmm. Then there's a scene where Tagana's in the room with Marco while Marco's writing in his journal, and he's like, why do you write a journal? Like, he can't understand this whole, you're, like, writing and stuff. That's, like, way too thinking for me. Uh, so then he like threatens him with his sword just to see if what Polo will do and Polo takes out his own and Tagana says better a man keeps the blade of his sword clean and its edge sharp oh and then the text on the screen I just gotta bring this up the text on the screen then says that Tagana puts his sword back in his sheaf and it says sheaf as in like wheat like grain of wheat sheaf (laughs) and my brain went no no honey that's i i really just want to see him put a sword into like a thing of grain sure go for it it's sheath oh yeah no i couldn't stop myself yeah somebody didn't use spell check when they were writing those captions well it wouldn't have come up as wrong because oh that's true yeah you're right because it is a word right exactly s-h-e-a-f yeah no totally right but that that's not what you stick a sword into (laughs) at least i hope it's not right (laughs) that's a good point But yeah, it's really weird. I mean, I kind of like it because again, Tagana, he seems pleased with the fact that when he whips out his sword, Marco's ready with his own. Like, ah, you know, I I see that you do have some warrior in you after all. I I like that. But then he gives in his little dig about, why are you writing in a journal? You should be keeping your sword sharp. So I don't know. I just like his whole way of being this sort of aggressive kind of sinister guy, but he doesn't ever take it to the level where it's like somebody would really do something about it. Well, not yet. Not yet. So then Tagana distracts the guard and he cuts all the water gourds open, which confused me because I thought he was going to poison them. I thought so too. And so I'm a little confused what the poison was all about at the last cliffhanger if he cuts them open. But basically, this is a known bandit tactic. Mm -hmm. And so where they'll come sneak into a camp, like cut all the water, and then once the people are dehydrated, they'll come and attack them and raid everything else. I pointed out that they needed some Fremen to come and help them out to survive this desert. (laughs) So, I mean, their alternatives are they can either turn back and they think that they have enough with just the one gourd that they had, because the only one that wasn't cut open was the one that wasn't in the storage area that they were already using. And they think they have enough with rationing that they could get back to the city that they came from, 
but they're worried that's where the bandits will be waiting because that's what most people would do is turn back and then they'll be attacked. And so Ian's like asking about other alternatives and they say there is an oasis, but even with a forced march, it's five days away. And they think that they, even with rationing, only have four days worth. And when you're doing a forced march, you're going to use even more water. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I'm like, I'd take the risk of going back. This seems like a really bad idea. (laughs) But Ian convinces them that they should go to the Oasis. Because let's listen to this dude we just met on a mountain who has no idea. Yeah, because it's like, okay, so even if there aren't any bandits, though, if you only have four days of water and it's and it's a week's journey on a normal pace, which you're not going to do better than a normal pace when you're out of water, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, I don't get how, why they think, oh, yeah, we'll do that. I'm like, take the risk of fighting off the bandits. At least you like, know that they're coming. Right? You know, don't you, you have a bunch of soldiers with you? Right. <laughs> oh, man. So that's what they do. Tagano wants to go, though. He's like, okay, I'll go back to Lop. You guys go to this oasis. And Polo's like, nope, I'm responsible for you. You have to stay with me. And then Polo writes in his journal about how every day they're going less and less. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) That's that's, that's what would happen in this situation. You're not going to get as far each day as your water runs out. Mm -hmm. So then Tagano suggests, oh, okay, well, Mike, my horse is still the best off. Why don't I just ride ahead? I can get to the oasis, get some water, bring it back. Which, if he was a good dude, that wouldn't be a terrible idea. Right, exactly. (laughs) And then the doctor collapses, and Barbara asks Polo if they can let him go in the TARDIS, just so that he can rest in comfort. And he agrees to that. Mm -hmm. And so Susan can go into the TARDIS with him, but Barbara and Ian have to stay with him, because he's still worried about them sneaking off. Magic. Yeah. (laughs) And then, yeah, he's basically like, none of us are going to survive the next day without water. And then we cut to Tagana at the Oasis with a water jug full of water and then pouring it out and seeing like, here's water, Marco Polo. Oh, yeah. for it. He was totally acting like a madman, just like talking to the sky and everything. I'm like, who are you talking to? (laughs) Oh, one cool thing I did note about that episode is that it's one of the longer ones. Mm. That one ran for like 27 minutes, whereas all the previous ones pretty much ended around 24. I thought that was just an interesting note because these are short episodes. Yeah, so like they were shooting for 25. That was supposed to be the slot for Doctor Who. But like you're right, most of them come in a little under 25. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why the first two episodes for this are both over 25 minutes. Just a random note. Yeah, they went over. I guess they didn't care too much because they weren't canceled or anything. (laughs) but yeah then we come to the next episode which is 500 eyes (laughs) that's not terrifying at all right so yeah polo's wondering did Tagano get lost did he never find the away like what's going on and they use up the last of the water actually i can't remember if that was the end of the pre i didn't make a note of it but either at the end of the previous episode or the beginning of this one they use up all the water i think it was the end of the last one okay it's the end of the last one so yeah so then it's like And they tried moving as far as they could, but of course they didn't make much progress. But it's the next morning now, and the doctor wakes up, and there's condensation, because apparently the outside temperature does affect the TARDIS uh, without this circuit. There's condensation, and of course, since the TARDIS is huge, there's a lot of water in the TARDIS. I mean, it may not be the best tasting water. Right, exactly. Because he even says something about it not being pure water. 
but yeah, I mean, so they sop it all up and put it in some kind of container and take it out. Oh, and Marco flipped out. Oh, yes, and then Polo, because he thinks that the doctor just has a bunch of water stored up in the TARDIS that he didn't tell them about. And Ian has to do a science lesson again to explain about condensation. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> although this one feels a little less forced than the last one because they're like trying to like calm Bo- you know Marco Polo down like look dude this is something and then he's like oh okay actually I have seen that happen before where water drips down walls and stuff to admit Marco at this point is not striking me as the most stable person right <laughs> Yeah, um, so something that I read was describing him as being authoritarian, skeptical, and irritable like the doctor, but also, but it's, it's also he can be heroic, practical, and a born leader like Ian, so he's almost like a fusion of the two of them. I don't know. I think that's just a combination for insanity right there. <laughs> Maybe. And so, yeah, then Tagano's story when they arrive at the Oasis, because that, that water gives them the extra, you know, that they need to be able to make it the rest of the way mm-hmm. and Tagana's story is oh when I got here there were bandits so I had to wait for them to leave and by the time that happened I could see you guys coming towards me so there wasn't really any point and, and Barbara right away is like where's the fire oh yeah she's <laughs> sharp yeah it's like if there were bandits because it was uh, bitterly cold the night before because it's mm-hmm. the desert so at night it gets really cold and she's like, they would have built a fire to stay warm, and there's no evidence of a fire. And Tagana, I don't know, I don't know, that's right, she doesn't say that one in front of Tagana. But Marco says something like, oh, well, if there had been a fire, we would have seen it. You know, he just kind of brushes it off, you know, like, it's not a big deal. Well, and Barbara's talking to Ian about this, and he's like, well, let's just ask him. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, are you honestly... She's just telling you that she's suspicious of him and you're going to just go ask him and believe whatever he says. Okay, sure. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, then when he's alone with Polo, Tagana's like, you really believe water went down again, trying to do the other evil sorcerer stories to Polo. But Polo's like, no, no, no. I know that this can happen. He doesn't believe any of this stuff Tagana's saying. Mm -hmm. And so he tells the doctor that the doctor can use the TARDIS for one more day. But the next morning, he has to come out and give him the key. And then they arrive at the next city, which is Tuan Huang, I think. And Polo is talking about how nearby there's this place called the Cave of 500 Eyes, where there were these 250 Hashashins that lived there. And their faces are painted on the walls, which is why it's 500 Eyes. <laughs> and apparently Hashashin is where we get assassin from in English. I think I do actually know that that, that was where it came from. Mm. And one of only two times in classic Who that an, uh, that a real world narcotic is mentioned. <laughs> yeah, that was also kind of interesting. I was like, wow, right. that wasn't something that I read. It was like, oh, okay, that's a weird fact. It's like, yeah, in classic Who, like you know, they, obviously there's alien drugs that sometimes are mentioned. I mean, the doctor smokes. The doctor <laughs> smokes whatever he finds on Alien Worlds. Why not? <laughs> Apparently they cut out, this is something I just learned last night, they cut out a reference in the script the doctor was going to say that he wanted to get his pipe. And oh they cut that out because they, they, I guess for whatever reason, decided they didn't want the doctor smoking anymore. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor tells Ian that he's going to make repairs and that he made a spare key while he was in the TARDIS before so that he can go in at night when they're at this way station. Because there are these way stations along the road, you know, like nowadays we have rest stops on highways because that's just a thing that they did for travelers. Mm -hmm. And so he'll sneak into the TARDIS to make repairs at night. 
And it's a real shame that we don't have this next part because apparently it was this whole performance with like dancing and everything. But like we just get the vocal part of it where Pingcho tells the story about the Hasha Sheens and with like musical accompaniment and everything. Before she busts into that story though, Barbara's trying once again to tell Ian that something, that Tagana is up to something. And she's in the middle of a sentence and Ian cuts her off and says, we got to listen to the story. (laughs) And Barbara just, I could just imagine in my head exactly the look she's giving Ian right now. (sighs) Once again, our fantastically smart Barbara is just getting put down and her worries and concerns just shot down. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, it's a way to build up the drama, but it just seems like this happens a lot in early Doctor Who, where somebody is worried about something and everybody else just shoots them down. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, come on, after all the bad stuff you guys have experienced, maybe you should take people's fears a little more seriously. (laughs) Right? What would it have hurt to hear her out? Right. I'm sorry, you would have missed the first part of this tale. Ooh. No. Apparently, she did it all in one take. And there was a lot of applause. Like, they said, like, the applause was actually genuine because everyone was impressed that she was able to get through that whole thing in one go. She has a fantastic storytelling voice. Yeah, apparently she was cast because uh, the director wanted to find a, a younger Asian woman who wasn't in this movie that had just come out the last year where just about all the Asian actresses in England had been in this movie. Oh and so gosh. she was like a fresh face. Like he wanted a fresh face that people hadn't seen before. And so this was like her big coup was getting in Doctor Who. And then from here, she mentions in the this documentary that was made about the story about how she became the, like, every time, like, a show needed an Asian character. <laughs> it was like oh an God. Asian woman, she became the person. Wait, wait, are you telling me that right before, just recently before this episode, there had been a movie with a crapload of Asian actors in it filmed in Britain, and they couldn't get some more of those actual Asian actors? Did, did they all just vanish into thin air before this episode? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Maybe they only did movies and wouldn't do TV. I don't know. Okay, I just have to ask, because now that I know that, that just adds a little bit more into the whole mess. Yeah. And honestly, it could have been a Hollywood film that was just shown in England. uh, I don't know. I don't know. All that I remember was that the movie was referenced in something that I read, and I forget the name of it even. So while this performance is going on, which, oh, I should also mention, the music in this one is really good. It really is. I wish there was more of it because they definitely recycle it but this was actually all composed for the story it wasn't stock music or anything like that so it's definitely good for setting the period and the mood and everything mm-hmm. but yeah so Tagana slips out while she's doing her thing and Barbara sees that and she follows and I realized that Ian had cut her off but it's like really Barbara really you couldn't say anything you couldn't whisper to him I'm following Tagana you know (laughs) like anything she has tried multiple times to bring up her suspicions about Tagana and Ian the last time cut her off so he could listen to a story yeah I'm sorry at that point I would probably have ignored Ian too other than smacking him outside the head oh I know but it's just this whole thing of going off on your own it's just always like even if you're mad at Ian come on don't go off on your own Oh, if she'd said something to him, he he would have just grabbed her arm and kept her sitting right there. He wouldn't have let her go off on her own. And she would have, you know, we would not have ended up where we did. Yeah. But yeah, so apparently Tagana, like the the people that he's been meeting with that were going to attack Polo's caravan, they're there at the Cave of 500 Eyes. It's like their hiding spot. And 
he's told that no guy has his forces waiting for news of Tagana's success and he says that he's going to take the TARDIS to no guy to make him invincible and then he says that the bandits need to kill Polo on his way to Shang 2 and then one of the guys says wait did you bring a woman with you and he's like no and they're like well she's out in the cave Mm -hmm. so they grab Barbara then they cut back to the rest of everybody and they've now realized that Barbara is gone and Tagana's back there just acting like nothing's happened and so Polo says they ought to split up and search for her and meanwhile the Mongols are playing dice to see who gets to kill Barbara yeah 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 that's a pretty (laughs) it's a pretty disturbing thing to watch people play dice over you So the doctor goes to the TARDIS because he's going to try to make repairs like he was telling Ian, but then Susan and Ping Cho come out and she sees him with the other key and he's a little annoyed about that. But then they're saying, hey, maybe Barbara went to the cave of 500 eyes because she seemed interested in it. And then the manager of the way station has apparently been watching them and the doctor sees him and gets them to come out. And he asks him where the cave is. And once the guy tells them, the Dr. Pink Joe and Susan leave to go look for Barbara. Mm-hmm. And I love that when they get to the cave, the doctor's so interested in the paintings on the wall. Right? <laughs> it's like, totally distracted by art. Right. It's like, oh man, this is so cool how they carved this. And they carved it just enough so that like the quartz pops out at the eyes. So it makes this really cool effect. Oh, oh, and right before he gets distracted, Ian flips out when he finds out that Barbara's missing. Yeah. Oh, and he's like, she, he actually mentioned that she was being stupid. How could she have done something so stupid? And I'm like, really? <laughs> she tried multiple times to tell you, Ian, and you blew her off so you could have story time. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> I cannot blame Barbara at that point for trying to take matters into her own hands. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, Susan's the one that reminds the doctor, like, uh, we need to find Barbara. And he's like, oh, yeah. So then we cut back to Tagana and he talks to the manager at the way station. First, he tells him that the doctor was getting into his caravan. But then he also tells him that the doctor made him tell him where the cave was. Mm-hmm. So Tagana's then freaking out because he doesn't want to be discovered. And... The doctor, Susan and Ping Cho, find Barbara's handkerchief on the floor, so they start calling for her. And then Susan sees the eyes move in one of the faces, and she screams. That was kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our cliffhanger for the episode, is Susan screaming because the eyes moved. And so then we go to episode four, The Wall of Lies. (laughs) I love these episode names. Oh no, I know. They are they are so good. <laughs> so uh so overly dramatic. So the weird thing about this one is the director was sick during this one. So actually another director came in and directed this one. So even though we have the telesnap photos of all the other episodes, this one we don't have. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if the director just threw them away or if he passed away before people could ask him if he had them or what. But he died. This particular guy died in the 80s. So it's possible he had them. And then he. So, so all of these ones, all these pictures are either taken from the magazine photos or are photoshopped. They did feel a little bit reused. Yeah. Or, yeah, in some cases, they were also taking it pictures from other episodes and just splicing them in. So then the manager tells Ian and Marco that the doctor went to the cave. So they go off 
Tagana arrives at the cave and he sings his old tune about evil spirits and he tells them they gotta leave because this place has some bad juju. Doctor pulls some Ghostbuster stuff. I, he's not afraid of ghosts. Right. <laughs> but I know that from later regenerations, he's not exactly fond of them either. Mm. So Ian and Marco arrive and Tagana makes a big show of, oh, spirits, please don't harm them. He's trying to scare them away because he doesn't want them to, to find out that he was here before. But then Ian sees the eyes in one of the, of the uh, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're supposed to be painted on the wall or carved. I mean, obviously there's some carving for the quartz, but I wish I could see more of this cave because I'm not sure how, what mm-hmm. it actually is. But he sees the eyes move. And he can tell that they, they're set in from behind, like when he goes to look closer. And so he's like, well, there must be a secret door around here because there's somebody behind this wall. I mean, it's cool. We all believe Ian, even though we didn't believe Susan. <laughs> right. I want to know why the bandits are, or didn't just kill Barbara right then. Right. It's like, okay, you know you've been discovered. You see the people in the cave. You already decided you're going to kill her. She's gagged. Just stab her, you know, but oh well, they didn't. So, yeah, they, they discover the door, and Ian and Marco, they get rid of the Mongols. I'm not sure if they both stab them or if just Marco does or what, but, yeah, they, they get them and they rescue Barbara. So then back at the way station, Tagana's trying to convince Marco that the others are plotting against him, which is actually pretty smart on his part because he knows that Barbara's going to say, I followed Tagana to the cave, and that's why I was there in the first place. So he's trying to get Marco to think that, Anything they say, that's just them trying to get us to against each other. And it's cool, because it works. Yep. And then he also tells Marco that the doctor is getting into the TARDIS. And even though he doesn't know about the second key, he's like, hey, he's a magician. Can he just get in if he wants? Like, what does a magician need a key for? Mm-hmm. So then when Barbara tells Marco that she followed Tagana to the cave, he doesn't believe her because he thinks it's them lying just to set him against Tagana. And then he tells Ping Cho that she won't be sharing a room with Susan anymore, which she is not okay with. Because Susan's been like her one friend in all of this. And she's already stressing about going to marry a 75-year-old man. And it's kind of like you're taking away like the one thing. Right? <laughs> the one thing I have here. So yeah, then they go on to the next city. And the doctor says that it'll only take him another night to fix the TARDIS. Barbara's sad that Susan will have to leave Ping Cho. And Ping Cho tells Susan that she's upset about Marco separating them because having Susan around this made this the best time of her life. And she's, you know, like Susan's like, well, I wish we knew how to like make things right with Marco. But then Ping Cho's like, well, it doesn't matter because I know that your, you know, your grandfather's fixing the TARDIS and so you'll be off soon anyway. Mm-hmm. It's all a bit sad right there. Yeah. And then they get onto the next way station and Tagana wants to go to town. So Marco lets him go. And then Ping Cho's suddenly like, oh, wait a minute. How did Tagana know that there was a passageway in the cave when he never, if he's saying that he was never there before, because that place was dark at that point. And so she tells Marco that, and then he's mad because it's flimsy evidence. And he's like, how dare you accuse someone like Tagana without like anything like proof? Yeah, he's a warlord and he's a man. Of course I trust him. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of people criticize Marco in this one, and I'm going to say he is so fixated on getting home that the last thing that he wants to do is cause some sort of incident that makes the con mad at him. I get it, and I also get it's a product of culture and the time of Marco Polo. Right. I mean, that's the way it would have been. Yeah, because, I mean, Tagana does some things that seem a little weird, 
but most of them have been things that the others have seen. And again, I think Marco's trying really hard to make this thing go off without a hitch. And it's just like the last thing he wants to do is cause some sort of like a diplomatic incident here. Right. And so, yeah, I think there's some willful blindness on his part towards some of the stuff with Tagana just because he just wants everything to work out okay. Mm-hmm. So then Tagana meets with the bandits again and he tells them they're about to go through this forest and that's the time to attack. And again, another great Tagana line when he, the, the guy asks him, like, what is he going to do about the old magician? He says that he'll kill him with a stake through the heart. <laughs> Love that. Oh my gosh. So then the doctor sneaks into the TARDIS that night, but Tagana has been waiting for that and he watches him. But Barbara was watching from another place and, uh, and saw that Tagana walks out after the doctor goes in. And so she knows that he's seen him. Mm-hmm. So she runs over to Ian and tells him that Tagana saw the doctor go in the TARDIS. And Ian tries to pull off this bluff where they're going to go wait in front of the TARDIS to see if the doctor comes out. Yeah. And this is the part that I don't quite understand. And I don't know if we needed the visuals for this. Because, and, but none of the captions say anything. Because Ian says for Barbara to go to the courtyard and try to get the doctor out of the TARDIS. And that's why he's going to do this thing where he sneaks or where they go out to the TARDIS to wait. Because he thinks they'll get the doctor out before him. But we never see a scene and there's never any sound of a scene where Barbara's yelling at the TARDIS for the doctor to come out or banging on the door or anything. Right. So I don't know exactly what happened there. But yeah, as it was, this was a really dumb idea because the doctor's in the TARDIS. So as they're waiting, the doctor comes out. Oops. And so Polo demands that he gives him the other key, and he's like, no. And then Tagana wrestles it away from him. And then Polo, you know, but whereas before he had taken the TARDIS, but kind of on his own, he like now like officially seizes it in the Khan's name, which means that anyone who tries to take it will be killed. He also mentions about how these are travel- mysterious travelers from another land. We can't trust them. And I'm like, what do you think you are? Yeah. Technically, you were also a mysterious traveler from another land. Mm-hmm. This is the part where the doctor says that you need more than the key to get in the ship. You need knowledge, and that's knowledge that he's not going to give him, and that he'd rather let Polo wreck the TARDIS before letting him have it. Also, Marco does say something in particular that makes me wonder what's going to happen in the last three episodes of this arc, because he says that he, Ping Cho belongs to him. Okay, well, I think that that's... I'm like, does he have a thing for her? No, that's more of a, for like, she's under his protection for now. So she's like his until he hands her off to the husband. Because I was a little worried. He's like, she is mine. And I'm like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, nothing sexual about that. I would have accepted that more than her 75-year-old fiance. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, at least the actor playing Marco has got those leading man looks, you know, he's got the square chin and, you know, everything. So, yeah. And so now they're keeping the, uh, all the people from the TARDIS in one tent where they're keeping them under guard and they've moved out into this forest. And so they're all conferring inside the tent. They're like, what are we going to do? We have to get out of here. And then Ian's like, let's take Polo hostage. Can force him to give us the key. And they're like, well, we have a guard. And he's like, well, I can use this to cut our way. Like they have like a broken plate that they can use to like cut through the tent and get out. And I was like, I really hope he's better at this than he was at making fire or cutting them (laughs) free in the Cave of Skulls. So he gets out and... Oh, oh, I do. Oh, oh, wait. No, there's this one. uh, There's a great line from the doctor in this where... I forget who, but somebody questions, but can we get Polo to let us go, even if we take him hostage? 
And the doctor says, by the time I'm through with that gentleman, he'll only be too glad to let us go. <laughs> yes, that was a great line. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, so once Ian gets out, though, he goes over to the guard, and it's one of those things where, like, you touch him, and he falls over, and he's already been stabbed. Mm-hmm. So that's the cliffhanger. So yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen next. Yeah. So yeah, we only did the first four on this one because I knew we would probably go long on it and doing seven episodes would be ridiculously long. So we only did the four. But yeah, so what are your thoughts of the main characters on this one? I think I'm getting some weird ranges of emotion from some of them. Mm. I like Susan being able to have a friend. Mm -hmm. I, I thought the doctor had his good moments. And of course, he has his arrogant jerk moments. Uh -huh. Ian is definitely on my list right now. <laughs> and Barbara only continues to be more awesome because she's figuring this out. Mm -hmm. And she's still trying to convince the others to at least listen to her. And they won't even listen to her, much less believe her if they actually did listen to her. Yeah. Marco, nope, not we're not talking about Marco. Mm -mm. Uh, okay. But Tagana seriously has like one of the best villain voices. Mm -hmm. He's a great villain, even though all I see are still images and hear his voice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's my feelings. I like how we're getting a chance to get more into the characters, although I kind of worry that Ian's getting a little entrenched in the whole stubborn British man trope, maybe. I hope that changes. Yeah, I think it changes. I know that he actually wasn't happy, the actor. he um, There were a couple of things that happened. He didn't particularly like his role in this one. He felt like he was being upstaged by Mark Eden, who played Polo. And he felt like, and, and that made it worse was that when the Radio Times did their feature on Doctor Who, on the cover, they had the Doctor, Marco Polo, and Tagana. Oh. No Ian, Barbara, or Susan. Wow. And so he had his agent send a very nasty letter to the BBC. And the BBC's response was, we don't control the Radio Times. We gave them a bunch of photos, and that's the one they chose to use. And we agree they should have used one that had the regulars rather than the guest stars. But mm -hmm. yeah, he, 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 but anyway, yeah, William Russell didn't feel like he was given enough of a part in this one. He didn't feel like he is, was particularly strong. And so I know he wasn't happy with it. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as far as my thoughts on this, I think it's good that we have Polo in this because. We've had the Doctor against Ian and Barbara for three stories, and it's good to give the Doctor an external person to be mad at. Because even though, like you say, like the Doctor, we definitely get the, the angry old man stuff out of him, and he even calls Polo a savage several times, so he's still got that conceit and everything. Mm -hmm. It's directed outward and not at Ian and Barbara. And so we are, yeah, he's still dismissive, but he's dismissive of Susan too. So I mean, like, it's not, it's definitely a better relationship than he had before with them. So we are kind of continuing with the, he's softening towards them and everything. Mm -hmm. Obviously him being sick in episode two didn't help things because it kind of diminished him in his own show. You know, a lot of people mentioned the fact that this seems more like it's, it's the Marco Polo show with the Dr. Ian Barber and Susan as the guest stars in the episode. Just a little bit. The narration of his journal does not help with that impression. Right, exactly. So again, I mean, Lucarati had just come off a 15 episode drama about Marco Polo that he'd done. So I kind of get where it might have made things where he might have made it a little more Marco centric. That will not be a problem the next time he writes for the show. The okay. next time he writes for the show, it is a Barbara story and it is fantastic. Woo! 
we'll get to that when we get to it. So yeah, so I mean, the doctor, like I say, he's softening a little bit, at least towards Ian and Barbara, which I think is good. Ian, I mean, he's, yeah, he doesn't get the best stuff in this one, certainly. And because most of the time he's there to just sort of like bounce off of Marco and just be like, hey, can't you be a little nicer to us? You know, like, can't you, you know, give us this or that. And so he doesn't get a lot to do there. Barbara, mm-hmm. of course, comes out again as the best pragmatic one out of all of them. And yeah. So that's good for her. And yeah, I think this one for Susan was a much needed story to sort of give her emotional pinning because that's the thing. It's like, we know she didn't want to leave England. And right. again, it's because I think she liked being around people her own age. And so again, she's traveling with her grandfather. She loves her grandfather, but it's just the two of them. It's her with an old guy, you know, like going from place to place. And Mm -hmm. it's nice. She wants to have that connection to people. And so I think that's giving her a little more depth to explore with Ping Cho as her friend and through all that. That'll continue through the next three. But I don't want to say too much about that. So what are your overall thoughts about the story? I didn't find it as engaging so far. Mm. And I don't know if it's because there there are no actual visuals besides the stills. Mm Mm-hmm. But the storyline itself, I'm not as involved in Mm. for some reason. I'm not actively like, ooh, what's going to happen next? And maybe I'll change my mind after the last three of the arc. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that come up with the historicals. I mean, that's one of the issues is, uh, or I should say both with historicals and with missing missing episodes, there's two different problems. Because yeah, with the missing episodes, like in my lifetime, I've seen some that I saw first as reconstructions get returned. And Mm -hmm. I will say that always helps a lot. There's a story we'll get to in season three where the all four were missing and there weren't a lot of pictures available. So the reconstruction was very dry. And it hurt because it was a sci-fi story also. So it was even more visually, like, it it was more based on the visuals. Mm -hmm. And so only having the audio is kind of hard. But having one of the episodes, one of the four get discovered, I watched that and I was like, wow, this one is so much better than I thought it was. (laughs) So it does make a difference to have the pictures. But the other issue is, I know some people have a hard time with the historicals in general, just because it becomes a problem when you have this sort of mindset of, well, you can't change history. Like, this is supposed to be educational, so you can't change history. Mm-hmm. And there are no sci-fi elements. So it's just kind of like the travelers sort of get restrained a lot because there's not, you know, you can only operate within the bounds of known history. So right. it's a lot of times, it's more about the peril to them personally than to saving a world or doing this big historical thing or whatever. So some people find that a bit dry, but I always enjoy the historicals because I think they age a lot better because the science fiction stories become outdated because, you know, the effects now are so much better and everything. And a lot of times if the script, if they were relying on the effects back then, Mm -hmm. that's a problem because that's never going to hold up. Now, some of them are also written really well and that's fine because then you can still go with that. But the historicals always had to be about the drama. And because the BBC had so much already with sets and props and costumes available, they look good. And so it's one of those things where I feel like the historicals age better and I find those a little more watchable personally. Okay. So we'll do the full ratings after we watch the last three. But right now, what would you give it? Out of 10? Yeah, out of 10. Five. Okay. 
Yeah, and the thing is, is I love historical stories. I love historical episodes of things, but for some mm. reason, this one's not... Like, there are some moments. There are a couple characters that are great. There are some fantastic lines. But as a story so far, I am not as captivated by it. Okay. Funny enough, I give this one a 9 out of 10. <laughs> but to be fair, that's, that's with me knowing all seven episodes. <laughs> okay, like I said, my, my opinion may change. These next three right. episodes may bring it all together for me. It may blow my mind. I don't know. Right. Okay. No, but that's fine. That's fine. That's, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted your thoughts as you experience the show. So <laughs> I think that that's, no, I think that works really well. So again, I wanted to mention another book people can look at for if they're interested in learning more of the behind the scenes and stuff like that. There is a series called I Who by Cat Wood and Lawrence Miles. I don't know how many volumes it is now because they're slowly releasing ones based on the original or on the new series. It was six volumes for the classic series. It's got every story they go through and talk about the, you know, like what's introduced in the story. They do like uh, what things may have been in the writer's mind when he came up with the story, like previous like sort of meteor things. They do like mm -hmm. a section on things that don't make sense about the story. And then they do like kind of like an analysis of how well did it work. And then like also a section on this is the behind the scenes stuff that happens. I get a lot of my stuff for, you know, like when I talk about behind the scenes and things that was going on, I get a lot of it from iHoo. Okay. Yeah. So next time, it's going to be the final three of Marco Polo episodes five through seven. And after that, we go back to ones that actually exist for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually weird because of the six, the six seasons that were made in the 60s, the first two seasons are almost complete. Okay. The sixth season is almost complete. But then three through five is, there's a lot of missing stuff in seasons three through five. <laughs> so it becomes a little bit harder going once we get there. Okay. But yeah, so anything that you wanted to talk about before we, uh, or anything to plug or anything like that before we head out? I can't think of anything in particular this time around, which sounds very sad. <laughs> Well, you can always <laughs> plug the 42 cast. That's never well, bad. I mean, <laughs> I figure at some point in our episodes, I ought to let you plug that oh, one. Oh, okay. I mean, it is your podcast. Sure. <laughs> and I don't think I've let you plug it at all. I've been the one being like, hey, check out this other one I guessed on. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I mean, I could plug other things that I'm currently doing and using. And I, I, I totally would tell people if you've got a chance and you want to have fun getting back out there and walking and running, do the Zombies Run app because... If you've ever going to, I always said I was never going to run again or ever again. <laughs> I never ran in my life. It would have to be with zombies chasing me. And this app actually sticks you in the middle of a cool story. You're picking up supplies. You're finding out mysteries and zombies will chase you while you're doing okay. it. <laughs> I was wondering about that because I see you posting about it and I didn't know what, the, what that was. So, okay. Yeah. It's like being in the middle of an actual adventure where they talk to you on the radio while you're doing your runs and listening and you can turn on zombie chases and have them set that you actually have to, has to register you picking up your speed either via GPS or step counter in order for you to escape the zombies. Mm, okay. It's really fun. <laughs> that's my plug. Okay. No, that's cool. That's cool. I actually did run for a year or so. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> this when I was in college. <laughs> oh, it's awful. My knees despise me. They're like, you're almost 40. Why did you decide to start doing this now? <laughs> yeah, I go through periods where I'm like, I've got to get fit. And then oh, it goes away. But, you know, <laughs> I did maintain it for about a year at one point. <laughs> but anyway. 
so yeah, I'm not going to plug the 42 cast because you know, but you should you should go check out the 42 cast anyway. That's I think you just plugged right. it right there. But um, I will plug a friend's podcast, which is the Police Box in a Junkyard podcast, and the reason why is because I gave him the title. <laughs> Because nice. his other podcast is called the Video Junkyard Podcast. And so I'm like, dude, why are you trying to come up with some Doctor Who name that's like way divorced from that? It's like you've already got Junkyard in your other show and the TARDIS was in a junkyard. So call it Police Box in a Junkyard. And he was like, it's I perfect. never thought to combine them two together. And I'm like, hey, branding, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I was actually on the first episode of that. Because that's a show where he's going to bring in different guests every time and he's going to talk about a new thing with Doctor Who. And he's doing everything. Like, he's not doing, like, the, just the TV show like we're doing all the way through. He's taking, like, any, like, it could be a comic one day. It could be a TV episode, another one. It could be a, a novel, another one, you know, or an audio. And so he's just randomly going through different Doctor Who media. So, yeah, I mean, that's check awesome. that out. Uh, like I say, I'm in the first one. So, you know, definitely listen to that one. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> But yeah, branding, which obviously I don't know anything about because time streams, what does that have to do with 42 cast? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. All right. So uh, yeah, Juliet, this has been fun. Definitely. I, like I said, for all that I may not have been captivated by the episode, it is really fun to like watch or listen and make notes and then just chat back right. and forth and laugh about certain Yeah, things. no, that's one of the things that I'm really enjoying about that too, because it's like, it's been a long time. Like I had a friend in college where we were trying to make our way through the show. And I really miss having that where we watch it and then we talk about it afterwards and everything because he moved away when we were like, I want to say we were still like, we were like, I think in the sixth season and there's 26 oh, wow. seasons of classic. So it's like, right. We got a good portion of stuff done because the seasons were longer in the sixties. They literally would go 52 weeks out of the year recording new materials. But uh, I miss having that. So this is fun. Definitely. But yeah, so come back next week. Check out episodes five through seven of Marco Polo. Or don't. Part of the reason why we do this the way that we do it, where we describe what happens, is that if you want to avoid watching the episodes and just listen to us talking about it, you can do that too. Oh, but I got to tell you, though, I've had friends that have never watched Classic Who that have started listening to our podcast worried that they'd be like completely out in the dark on mm. this one. No, they're, they're totally loving it. Oh, good. It. Yeah, because that's, that's why I was yeah. intending doing it this way was like this way we it, like if people don't want to watch it, they can just listen to us and they still get the gist. Yeah, so it's been cool to hear feedback. All like right, that. cool deal. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. Have them go rate it on Apple Podcasts. Somebody did rate us on Stitcher Radio, I think. Oh, I gotta go check that out. I'm so excited. I rated us on both, and I'm like, I'm probably biased <laughs> right. because I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, I saw yours on Apple Podcasts, so I knew, yeah, <laughs> I knew it was you, but yeah, okay. All right, now, cool. Yeah, yeah, and so anyone listening to this, also, go rate us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, app, yeah, Apple promotes the show more in their searches if you have more ratings. So it helps. But yeah, so I think that's it for this week. So I'm Nathan. I'm Juliet. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock. 
both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ooh, so young, ooh, so